0: From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. From infection control and treating blood loss to the ambulance transport system, many of today's medical innovations have their origins on the battlefield. Today, we're going to hear about some of those advances from a plastic and reconstructive surgeon who's a graduate of Upstate Medical University and who served in the Navy. Dr. Patrick Basil joins me by telephone. Thank you, Dr. Basil.
1: Thank you for the invitation.
0: Now, HealthLink listeners may remember your name because we interviewed you back in December 2012 after you were part of the first bilateral or double arm transplant. Um, Do you know how that patient is doing six years later? Uh,
1: He is doing wonderfully. Uh, He is uh, able to drive his cars and do all the things he loves to do and has uh, gained really good function of both uh, the limbs, and we are just very proud of him and happy that everything worked out.
0: Oh, that's amazing. And I I read that there was another service member who received a double-arm transplant a couple years ago. So, um...
1: Correct. Um, Every year uh, there has been more and more. Um, And the the hardest part is finding good donors because you have to match, you know, size, color, gender, uh, and then of course all the compatibility things that, you know, so you won't reject it. So it's pretty hard to find a good donor, and the waiting list is pretty long.
0: Wow. Wow. Well, now, uh, during your time, because you were at the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center, um, and I read a biography that you were a leader during that time in wounded warrior care. So can you talk a little bit about what what was involved and what types of injuries you were um, treating?
1: Absolutely. So... uh, I initially started at the National Naval Medical Center, which then became Walter Reed when it combined with Walter Reed Army, and it's the largest military medical treatment facility in the world. Uh, Right when I got there in 2009, uh, the war in Afghanistan kind of launched, and we were seeing a heavy flow of incoming wounded. Uh, Aside from Brooke Army in Texas, which took all of the burns, we took all of the uh, blast trauma from Afghanistan and Iraq, and... Mm -hmm. The interesting thing is people uh, were surviving these horrific uh, explosions more than they were in previous years because of improvement in body armor and um, forward surgical teams and and advancement and many different things. So when they were presenting to us for reconstruction, uh, we were really having to think outside the box and how to recreate the algorithm for treating them. So myself alongside two or three other amazing surgeons, really kind of rewrote the book on uh wounded warrior care and, and uh, military- tre- uh, treatment of military wounds uh and we re- we had the opportunity to travel around the world and share our our data and our experience with uh, people all over
0: wow wow so are we still uh or or is that um uh, walter reed still receiving most of, like blast injuries from any, any yeah Walter sort of... Reed
1: still is the primary receiving uh treatment facility, however, the number of wounded has gone way down um in the past few years as the amount of active campaign uh has has stopped so uh now we will see you know your 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 kind of accidents and other things that happen over there, but we are not doing as many active uh, combat missions as we were you know between really two thousand ten and two thousand thirteen
0: okay. Well, you recently uh, were in Syracuse visiting the upstate campus to give a lecture about the medical lessons that come from the battlefield. So let's talk Absolutely. Uh, Let's talk about what we've learned from, and this goes back decades, centuries?
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, centuries. So, you know, back in, um, uh, and I really loved your intro because you said most, of, a lot of our uh, advances in medicine happened during the time of uh, war and it's absolutely true. From blood transfusions to the trauma system to penicillin, uh, those all were kind of the result of having to keep people alive and pushing research and development. So, um, what has happened mostly in the past recent years, uh, you know, from the time of Vietnam and Korea, with uh, I'm sure you'll, you remember the show MASH that started uh, having really. Surgeons right on the front line being able to patch up wounded uh, service members right when they get hurt and then kind of get them back home to, for definitive treatment. Um, and then also at currently at Walter Reed and right across the street at the National Institute of Health, there's a lot of research going on in uh, adult autologous stem cell transfer, um, immunomodulation, a lot of the things we did with the uh, double arm transplant regarding um, immunosuppression. So, having those uh, ability and resources to kind of push medicine is amazing. And unfortunately, a lot of that happens at the time of war due to necessity.
0: That's what I was going to say, because necessity is pushing this forward. Um, how did, tell me about penicillin. I didn't realize that came out of battle.
1: Well, it's, it's just, uh, again, at the time of uh, when people were needing antibiotics. Um, and a lot of this research was being done at the universities, they found an application for it during uh, wartime. So that kept people alive uh, when we were having a lot of these open wounds that we weren't able to treat. You know, that people would just die of sepsis. Now being able to treat uh, staph and streps, which was very interesting, back then penicillin did cover staph, um, it uh, kept people alive. Uh, it kept our, our wounded uh, service members alive.
0: So the traumatic wounds of the wars of modern times do they uh-huh. differ substantially from the wounds going back to like the Civil War? Because the, the weapons are different. Uh, and even
1: well, even as much as far back as uh, Vietnam, because the uh, well, first off, people are living right instead of being blown up in the Civil War or even World War One, World War II, where they would bleed out on the battlefield. Uh, people are surviving through the use of you know tourniquets forward surgical uh units um the other thing is that the the uh intensity of the blast now is just so tremendous uh, there's also dealing with biological and chemical weapons as well so it really kind of had us think outside the box on how to treat these wounds um but like just take, for instance, in Vietnam era, if you got an injury to your leg really at all that looks like it wouldn't be able to be kind of salvaged, you got an above-the-knee amputation. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever seen an amputee with above-the-knee amputation. It's hard because they don't have their knee joint. Mm-hmm. Now, if we have someone injured and they have the knee joint intact, <clears throat> they're, they're going to save vital components to uh, keep them as below-the-knee amputation. And when they get back to Walter Reed, we'll do what we call a flap surgery we we'll remove tissue from one part of the body to their lower extremity to keep the length, and now they'll we'll be a below-the-knee amputation and be able to do much better. So that's something that's absolutely different than what was done, even as far back as in the um, late
0: 1900s. So you you talked like bleeding out on the battlefield, but um, did tourniquets? Did that? Did tourniquet use come out of wartime Correct. too? Correct. So okay.
1: Well, yeah. Well, I mean, tourniquets have always been used, but there have been uh, other type of, um, you know, I guess more liberal use of tourniquets because uh, than in the civilian sector, where I think people were nervous using because they didn't want uh, to potentially lose a limb. But it's about saving a life, and so there have been other things such as uh, the ma- mass pants or the military anti shock trousers, which someone who they had a very horrific injury and was losing a lot of blood, you slip these pants on and you kind of uh increase the pressure and it sort of shunts all the blood toward the core to keep the blood in the brain perfused. Uh so those were definitely came out of the um military time and, and had been used in civilian sector as well.
0: Okay. You're listening to Upstate's Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Patrick Basil. He's an Upstate graduate who served in the Navy and recently received an Outstanding Young Alumnus Award. And we're talking about the lessons that come from the battlefield. So let's talk about um, hospitals and hospital ships, because the Navy has ships that are hospitals, right?
1: Absolutely. So uh, aside from the hospitals, what I was just talking about, uh, we have two main hospital ships. They are the USNS Comfort, which is the Atlantic Fleet uh, Hospital Ship, and the USNS Mercy, uh, which is the Pacific Fleet Hospital Ship. They were old oil tankers that were delivered to the Navy um, in the uh, 1970s and were completely gutted on the inside and converted into basically a floating trauma center with everything you could need on it from CAT scans to oxygen to... uh, x-ray, surgical suites, intensive care units, um, and these mobile hospitals are a wonderful tool because they can be really sailed anywhere in the world and placed off of a, um, a coast and be able to take care of our wounded. But we also use them in humanitarian uh, missions, such as when the awful earthquake hit Haiti, uh, a bunch of uh, shipmates, sailed down to Haiti, parked off the coast of Haiti, and they would uh, helicopter and and boat wounded people out to them, and um, it's uh, just an amazing tool. Uh, And the the most amazing thing is that it can be fully underway in about three days, and you can bring a floating hospital ship directly to uh, an area of conflict.
0: So So, uh,
1: they are a wonderful tool.
0: Do the uh, patients come there to be stabilized, or do they recover there as well?
1: They can recover there as well. Uh, there's a whole intensive care unit. There's, um, there's thousands of beds on, on board. And so uh, a lot of them come there to get uh, life-saving uh, surgeries. Uh, right now, in, in fact, as we talk, uh, US, um, USNS Comfort is in South America. I think it might be in Peru. Uh, and they are doing amazing humanitarian work, doing cleft palates, cleft lips, people with congenital deformities burns and things like this. So they are on a continuing promise, which is a, uh, a sort of a voyage they take every other year to go down to South America and offer humanitarian assistance to countries that don't have the uh, resources.
0: Oh, interesting. All right. Well, let's look ahead a little bit. You mentioned, you know, biological and chemical warfare. Um, are there things that you think we'll learn from, from that type of battle? That will apply to civilian life.
1: Well, you I mean you're saying uh, chemical warfare in particular, or right? Or
0: biological?
1: Yeah. I. Um, well, I think you know the interesting thing is I think a lot of what we know they've been working on for years already. Um, so it's it's not something that I don't think there's much that we're not aware of, but it's more of the fact that if and when uh, our enemies or or even terrorists use these weapons against civilians or even service members, how do we handle that? So I think that's constant evolution. I think, you know, we <clears throat> we still hear about uh, um, people using biological and chemical weapons across the world. And um, I think the, having the, the technology to help people and develop that is going to continue. Uh, it's all about being very prepared, prepared for anything. And I think that's what... Um, our country really excels in is that we um, are almost always ready for any type of conflict, and uh, we're able to help others around the world who don't have the resources or uh, technology to do that.
0: Yeah. Okay. So it, it it's not going to be something that surprises us. There's people already working on on how to how to combat. Correct. Some, okay. Absolutely. Well, yep. let's talk before, before we end about the sort of the future of plastic surgery, reconstructive surgery. Um, where do you see that headed?
1: So I think uh, it's going to be in regenerative medicine. Um, I think it's going to be when uh, you need a kidney or you need an organ or even tissue fixed uh, from a burn or whatever, that you're we're able to harvest your own cells and then grow your own organs and own tissue. Uh, that are specific to you. Um, I think, uh, why uh, you know, it, in the meantime, I think things like face transplantation, hand transplantation, things like this are going to continue because they are the best option for most people. But ultimately, I think in the future, it's definitely going to be regenerative medicine and learning from other animals in the world that are able to regenerate organs and limbs and figure out how they do it and sort of uh, figure that out for how we can use it in uh, the human world.
0: Now, I've heard that the liver regenerates. Do other organs regenerate on their own?
1: Some do, to a degree, uh, and it depends, and and it's figuring out why. What we do know is that uh, the, the, uh, the, the growing fetus or the newborn, they have an innate ability to heal wounds that we don't as we get to when we're adults. And a lot of research is being done into why you can operate on someone in utero make an incision in their skin and they heal without a scar, you know? So it's it's things like that, that we are trying to figure out how and why. So, uh, but I think the, you know, the big thing is people who need organs like um, salt organs, like heart transplant or liver, kidney, things like that. I think that's going to be the, uh, on the cusp of uh, the upcoming research.
0: Wow. Something to look forward to. That's interesting. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you uh, talking to me. My guest has been. Oh no,
1: problem. Thank you again.
0: Plastic and reconstructive surgeon Dr. Patrick Basil. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show HealthLink on Air.